Well, I just want to let you know that if someone of you fall asleep, thank you. Thank you. Because it means you trust me to take it from here. And uh, so uh, that's a, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to consider it that way. And uh, let you say, you know what, Pastor, I believe you've got this. I can just take a couple winks. But I pray that you actually will not go to sleep. I pray that you are awake and alert. And, and not just because I'm so entertaining or, or, or that I'm hip or cool, because I'm none of those things. Uh, I like to think I am, but I realize that I am not. Um, but because what we have in front of us is the very Word of God. It is the very declaration that God has made known to us. This is what says who He is and what He has done and what He has said. And so it has incredible merit, incredible worth, incredible value in our lives. And so that while we're here to dedicate some time to to listening and growing in the knowledge of God's Word, I pray that will keep us awake. And and as we've looked at this 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 letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, uh, if you want to turn there in your copy of God's Word, you can go ahead and do that. If you're using one of our pew Bibles or need a Bible, the Bible in front of you is page 1020 and 1021 is the page we're going to be on. Um, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But as we've been looking at this, this, this series called Awakened, we've been talking about this God, this, this Jesus who has done such a work by the nature of who He is and by the completion of what was necessary on the cross and His resurrection that it is to wake us up, it is to transform our lives, that we are not left the same once we have an encounter with who Jesus really is. At least that should be the case. But, but, as Christians, that is not always the case. We say this is of most importance, that Jesus is Lord, that He is God, that He is mighty, He alone can save. He is the one, when we use the words Lord, He's the one that has control of our life. And yet, in personal testimony, I can say in my life, there have been times where I've kind of fallen asleep at the wheel. And it wasn't because of, Jesus, I just trust you got this. It was just because I wasn't alert. I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't fully passionate about who He is and what He has done for me. I don't know if any of you have ever felt that place in life. And then you get to a moment where all of a sudden that startling wake up and it's, you ever been driving and you had that moment and, and the worst dream that you've ever had is you've been at the wheel and then you realize like 40 miles has passed and you're thinking, oh no. I don't remember driving that much. I am not really in a dream. This is actually happening. But it's startling. And you realize that I've got to do something different than what I'm being, what's being done. I've got to pull over, get some coffee, get some rest, do something. Sometimes in life there comes these moments where we've got to wake up. And Paul is writing this letter, as we're going to see, he's writing this letter to a church that he loves a church that he cares for, a church that he helped to found and, and establish. He spent 18 months there on his second missionary journey, and yet he is over a thousand miles away across the sea in another place and hearing about the tribulation, the trials, all the things that are going on in this city of Corinth, in the church in the city of Corinth. Divisions, lack of devotion, apathy to doctrine, all these kind of things that are just incredible in their depressing 
uh, statement. For Paul especially. But Paul, being moved by the Holy Spirit, he writes this letter. God uses this letter and illuminates and inspires it. So it becomes the Word of God. It's preserved for us as God speaking through the Apostle Paul. And, And we see this admonishment. We see this encouragement to to wake up, to take notice of where you are, what you are doing, and how this is completely antithetical. It's completely against all that God has done. And it's just as if you've fallen asleep and you're not awake to who Jesus is and really what He's done. Because if you were, something would be different. Something would be changed. Because Jesus doesn't leave us just as we are. He changes everything. So Paul spends a lot of time speaking about different issues. talks about the issues of divisions. He talks about the issues of lawsuits. He talks about the issues of open habitual sin that is just being kind of uh, carelessly just passed over. It's not a big deal. He's talking about issues of marriage. He's talking about issues of how to make it an, an example in the culture. He's talking about issues of convictions. He's talking about what it means to be the body. What it means to be united. He's talking about what it means to hold things in order and, and hold up the proclamation of God's Word as of utmost importance. He's talking about what love really looks like. And how love changes everything. Not a love that we can will in ourselves, but a love that comes from God. And towards the end of this letter, he's kind of wrapping it up, wrapping the ideas together and what this all comes back to. In the beginning of the letter, he talks about the message of the cross, that it's a message that seems foolish to many. A message that just seems off the charts weird and strange. But he says to those who are being saved, to those who recognize that this Jesus is who he says he is, and that he he does what he says he will do, he brings about those promises. They see it's the power of God under salvation. They're the ones being saved, transformed. He begins with that. And then near the end, he starts talking about not only the work of the cross, but the overcoming of the cross. That what Jesus did on the cross was enough. But what he did beyond it shows exactly that, yes, this is not just some religious talk. This is not just some philosophy. This is God who overcomes and will not let anything Make him less than he is, not even death. So with all that being said, may we be awake and alert and stand as we honor God in the reading of his word. It'll be on the screen behind me. We're going to be in chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 3 and go through verse 20. Um, and here we go. It says, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Kepha, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Now, I want you to know this is written like almost 2,000 years ago. They were still alive when this was written. They're not still alive right now. So... This is not God making immortal humans walking the earth right now. Okay, just just to clarify. Make sure you're awake. Then he appeared to James. 
Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim and so you have believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. Moreover, we're found to be false witnesses about God. Because we have testified wrongly about God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Lord Jesus, we've just read from Your Word. So God, help us have reverence for that. Help us to learn from You in spite of ourselves. Help me teach in spite of myself. For God, we want You to be honored. We want people to see that You are the Great One. You are the Mighty God. There is no one but You. There is no one like You. And You is life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So part of our goal here is to help people see what the Scripture says, to find out what it means, to see how it applies, and and to ask the question, what are we going to do about it now? Are we going to trust? We believe that when they come to this point, this is what brings about life change. And so here we have, once again, the Apostle Paul. He's writing this to the church at Corinth, and he's got this aim. And at the end, he's, he's bringing all this to a head and talking about just think upon the resurrection. Think upon what it really means that Jesus is not asleep, that Jesus is not dead, that Jesus is awake, alert, alive, and that changes everything. Think about your encounter with the living Christ. It was that encounter that changed the Apostle Paul's life. It was that encounter that he saw God and said, He is preeminent. He is exactly who He has claimed to be. He is exactly who the church has claimed Him to be. He is exactly the one that I've been persecuting, but I did not know that He is who He is. It changed the Apostle Paul's life. A man that was once a persecutor of the church, he even admits it himself. This is not me casting a slander on someone who was used of God to write the Scripture. 
It's showing us that no one, aside from Jesus, is perfect. The Bible doesn't paint everybody with rose-colored glasses. And it talks about this man. And his life is changed because he meets the risen one. And then he realizes, because this is the risen one who actually has power over life and death, and he had been trying to submit to death all that had chosen to follow the giver of life, he realized that, well, he's in a big pile of trouble. Were it not for grace. Were it not for the fact that God demonstrates incredible grace, Paul and all of us would have deserved to spend like, yep, we're in a big pile of trouble. We've got nothing good awaiting us. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible makes this clear. But because God is who He is, and because God is holy and yet gracious, He gives grace and takes care of that justice issue that's in the middle. You've got God's holiness, God's justice, and God's grace. How do they come together? God is holy. He's able to do mighty things. God is gracious. He's able to overcome His justice by doing a just act. And He is able to overcome death and the wages of sin. And He's able to be born, uh, to, to be resurrected. And now we see that He's able to do that. He's also able to give that to those in need. This changed everything for the Apostle Paul. And whenever he came to Corinth, he wasn't coming to exalt himself. He wasn't coming to make much of himself. He was coming to make much of Jesus. That was the central message. He's saying, for I passed on to you what was most important. It was the central thing of all. That yes, all these things about Jesus' behavior and His miracles and His teaching and His piety, all these things are good Many people who have influence in the world, who have wielded philosophies, have demonstrated at least some of those. But what makes Jesus different, what sets Him apart, what would change someone who was zealous for the Old Testament and believed that the Christians in the early day were trying to lift up someone as God who was not God, what changed them was the fact that, okay, Jesus has just proved that He is exactly who He says He is. And that everything that's said about Him as Messiah was fulfilled and that He lives puts the, the exclamation mark. It stamps it. That He is who He says He is. So the preeminence of Christ just captivated Him. I know I spoke about this last week on the Facebook message. But Paul is hitting that hard and bringing them back to saying, if you miss this, you miss it all. And if you don't get this, if you don't have the fact that Jesus really died for our sins according to Scripture and really rose again according to Scripture, and that He lives even today, Jesus is going to change nothing in your life. If that is not true, all that we do is worthless. But if it is truth, everything we can do is worthy. Everything. And Paul says this part of him, it brought in a vocal message he could not keep from speaking. It brought a valuable message. He says to keep this as most important. It brought a vital message. It was for our sins. 
that Jesus died, it wasn't just for some abstract reason. It was very pointed and purposeful to each of our sins. It was viewable. It was something that the Scripture said is needed, is necessary, is promised, is provided. It was verifiable. There were witnesses that were even alive back then. They're not alive here on the earth today. They still are alive because they're with Jesus. But they're not walking with us like right now. Um, that would be some really, really, really um, old people. Um, but... They, it was verifiable. They said, you know, if you don't believe me, go ask them. That's the kind of the, the issue, the, 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 the gist, if you will. It was a victorious message that it was able to save. Paul says, I, I was considered the least of the apostles. I'm not even worthy because I was a persecutor. If there was anything you say is like really bottom wrong, terrible, terrible sin, Paul says, I, that was me. You could probably say, well, yeah, this is re- this is somewhat bad. This is like, what we would like to probably call a respectable sin. You know, if somebody does that, they're not that bad of a person. And then you have like the really revolting sin. And then you have the, you know, the, the repulsive sin. And, and being a persecutor of the church, being someone who actually kills Christians, we kind of hold that as a high standard. We actually put that a little bit like even more as an enemy than someone that's in a life of habitual promiscuity, if you will. And Paul's saying that even to me, God demonstrated victory. He redeemed my life. That I am not the same person I once was. That I have now grace. And this grace was not without effect. It made me actually work hard. It put me on the sidelines, on the bench, say, well, I'm out of the game. It actually brought me in and put me to work. And he gave him a voyaging message, a message that he could not keep in just one place, confined in one little box or in one wall, set of walls. He wanted it to go where Christ had not been named. But there's a key point here, and that is the resurrection of Jesus is the reason for it all. The resurrection of Jesus is the reason for it all. And it's something that I know we harp on and we get really, uh, really loud and vocal about around Easter. Especially sometimes people preach this. I've even preached this this text at Easter. So some of you are going to be like, I think I've heard this before. And I think you've actually said this before. And the answer to that is yes. Because the Bible is going to say what it says. And I could try to spin it and say, all right, I need some new points here. But I'm going to go back to the text and just see what it is telling us. And, and it may be a restatement of something I've said before, but it's just a restatement of what Jesus has already preserved for us. That is this. The resurrection of Jesus is the reason for it all. It's the reason we can say, yes, Jesus is worth it all. Because we have no redemption were it not for the resurrection. We have none. We have, well, we have no assurance of it. We could be holding on to a pipe dream, wishing upon a star. That would be the next level of, of consideration. But because of the resurrection, we're like, oh yeah, this is not just a wish. This is not just some hopeful thinking. This is something that is legitimately assured and guaranteed. But Paul plays along with the argument. He says, because if Christ has not been raised, if you, people in the, the, the Corinthian group, what's going on here? In, in ancient Greece and, and, and in the Roman Empire, there was kind of this belief that someone could have a spiritual resurrection. But the fact of someone dying physically as a body and then being resurrected as a body, that, no, that doesn't happen. Now, in the Jewish people, there were people that believed in a resurrection. The Pharisees actually believed in a resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees, however, didn't. They believed that the only uh, thing that was an afterlife was basically the legacy you left. Leaving a good legend, if you will. A good inheritance. 
But Paul is going to come back and say, no, no, this was not just some spiritual resurrection that wasn't like really tangible, very abstract. I'm saying it was a very literal physical resurrection that Jesus had a glorified body. He plays along with the argument though. He says, if Christ has not been raised, verse 13, then just understand this. This Jesus we talk about, he's lifeless. He's a corpse. He's a decaying body in a tomb somewhere. Maybe not in a tomb. Maybe his disciples hit him and threw him in a ditch. Your great founder, your great leader, gone. There's no hope there. If Christ has not been raised. He says if Christ has not been raised, then preaching is unprofitable. This whole proclamation thing, this wee thing we do, we open up the Bible, let's study, let's hear about Jesus. It's worthless. It's meaningless. It's unprofitable. It adds no value to your life. If, if Christ has not been raised, then also these disciples that are going around and witnessing, they're just teaching lies. They're just a bunch of liars. That's all it is. It's a bunch of hubbub. Humbug. If Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then here's what you also need to know. Death is bigger than Jesus. Death is limitless. Death is the God you should fear. If Christ has not been raised, then that means death is actually bigger than God. Plays along says, if Christ has not been raised, then following Jesus is actually worth nothing. It's not only that preaching is unprofitable, but following Jesus is worth nothing. In verse 17, it has no value. It's, it's, it's in vain. It's added no benefit to your life. You're no more holy by following Jesus. If Christ has not been raised, then not only is death limitless in its power, but sin is very powerful. It's a slave master you'll never be free from if Christ has not been raised. But you will have a master. If Christ has not been raised, it means that loved ones, all those people we love to come and have a funeral with and talk about they're in a better place. Jesus is, they knew Jesus and, and he has saved them and He's with them. They are, they are absent from the body and present from the Lord. If Jesus has not been raised, guess what? We don't like to think about it, but that means either they're not with Jesus in a place called hell, or it means that we're just simply moving towards annihilation and extinction. We're all going to be worm food. And that is the only hope we have. Nobody likes talking about that. If Christ has not been raised, then your very hope has been devoured. There is no assurance. There is no peace. Whatever faith you may have, it, it's nothing. Paul plays along the argument. He says, you realize what you're saying. If you don't hold of utmost value the fact that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that payment was necessary to take our place but also that He was raised again according to the Scripture. Because if He died merely on the cross and that was it, we would not know, was that enough? Did that really cover it? Because it looks like there's someone still bigger, sin and death. But because of the resurrection, we say, oh, sin, you have no sting. Death, you have no power. And He goes on to say, Christ is risen. As it is, Christ has been risen. You don't have to live a life feeling like you're worthy to be pitied. Oh, woe is me. I'm a Christian. The world is against me. 
but that you have the most extraordinary hope because Jesus is alive because he's raised. Preaching the message is, is the most profitable thing that you can do. It may not put money in your pocket, but it will put riches in, in your crown and glory to preach about the name of Jesus. And, that, and let me make it clear. Preaching is not just what I do up here on a Sunday morning as a preacher. To preach means to persuade. It means to converse. It means to tell someone who does not yet know of why you have this hope. So preaching can take many manifestations, by the way. As long as it's bringing forth the glory of the Lord and speaking the word of God. Disciples are teaching truth that every time you sit down and communicate the gospel to someone, you're not passing along a bunch of hogwash. You're giving them absolute essential need and truth. That death is limited. It's only something that is there for a moment but vanishes because God overcomes it. That following Jesus is worth everything. There's nothing possibly better that you could do. That sin is powerless. It does not hold slavery over you any longer. That loved ones, they have provision that one day we will go to be with them. The Bible has assured us of this. And that Christ delivers hope. It is assured. You see, the resurrection of God, the resurrection of Jesus is God's amen to Jesus' words, it is finished. It's God's amen to the statement, it is finished. By the way, when you say amen, when you're saying that you're, you're basically ending saying, let it be done, I agree, let it be so. That's why we say amen at the end of a prayer. God, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you, let this be so. God, I'm in agreement with what your word says, let it be so. So, you know, when we say amen, like, And all these people are going to hell. We're not saying, amen, let it be so. No, let's not do that. You know, that's, that's not the, that's not the right proper place to say amen. So, this is God's amen to Jesus. It is finished. When you say amen, Jesus, God is saying, let it be so. I agree. I affirm that. As the Trinity is at work. And in that, you see a declaration of the grace of God, a declaration that this is who He is and what He has done and what He has said, but also a declaration that this resurrection is not something that has only happened here in the pages of this Bible, but it is something that also happens in the, the, the chapters of our life. Paul says the reality of the resurrection, it demonstrated grace to him, that by grace He is what He is. And that the grace of God was not without effect. That his life became a living declaration. This is resurrection. It is so. Then in a way, Paul's life became an awakened amen to Jesus' words. It is finished. And I wonder, is our life that declaration? Are we that amen to Jesus saying it is finished? And what we're doing is, God, yes, we in agreement with what you've done. It is not only a declaration of the grace of God, it's a demonstration of the gospel of God. In the verses, the text that's right before you, that this is what it took of Jesus dying according to the Scripture for our sins and being raised again, it points us back to the demonstration that there is no other name, there is no other way for salvation. And the gospel is that good news is that while there is bad news, there is a God who is holy and He sees the offense of our sin, that bad news, and yet He demonstrates His love for us by sending the sufficient One, the only One, 
through which we may be saved. He fulfills that which was promised. He provides that which we need. And there's that demonstration that the resurrection says it's completed. It is also the definition of the glory of God. Not only a declaration of the grace of God coming alive in His people and a demonstration that His Scripture is true, that is the definition of the glory of God. Verses 21 and 22, it says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. In other words, just track this. That because of Adam's sin, Sin was passed in our spiritual DNA. And there becomes this propensity towards in our life that we end up choosing sin. And we all are separated from God. That just as Adam sinned, it's passed on. It's that, it's that genetic disorder, that, that immunodeficiency towards sin that all of us carry. That there is no cure on our behalf. Just as in Adam, all die. It took a man to bring death to all men. It will take a man living in our place to bring life to all that will trust him. And that is Jesus. And when it says he is the first fruit of, of the resurrection, it means that he was that first guaranteed deposit that there is more to come. That there was something more. That it wasn't just him that was going to have resurrection life. It was all that would come after him. It was all that was going to be there. He was the earnest deposit towards what was given and what would be coming? That just in Adam all dies, so also in Christ. When we are in Christ, all will be made alive. It's the definition of the glory of God. Only God could do something like that. Not something that was possible with anybody else. But Jesus made that which was impossible possible. So what are we to do with that? What are we to do with this message that's been entrusted to us? What are we to do with this gift that God says, I made it available to you. I've given you the good news. I have done everything for it to take place. The first that we must do is to recognize who the living hope is, who Jesus is. If you've never come to that place, that's the beginning start. Having your eyes open and recognize and when you go to church, you're not just going to a place that's a peace-filling place, but it's a place where you come to the recognition that this Jesus person is serious. That he, only He can change everything. I've got to recognize who He is and respond to Him. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you've heard about Jesus, but you've never really come to the recognition that this is why we celebrate His name. This is why we live for Him. The second part, what are we to do? We're to reveal who Jesus is, the living hope to others. That we have a responsibility entrusted to us. That just as Paul says, this was of first importance to me. What is of first importance to you when it comes to Jesus? Is it communicating to others who he is and what he's done for you? You need to be a part of the relay to relay Jesus' message of hope by making disciples that make disciples. That not only do you reveal who Jesus is, but you play your part to say, in this time that God has given me for such a time as this, I will have the baton that was handed on to me. And one day I will no longer be here. But in that time, I will have passed the message on to those that also make disciples. That I realize something. A part of this life that God has given me, should He tarry and not come back, is replacing me. You ever think about that? 
One of your jobs in life is to replace yourself. You've taught about that at work and, and, and learned about that in school that, you know, you're teaching people so they can one day be teachers. You're, you're training people so they can one day do the work whenever you're not working, whenever you retire, whatever may happen. The same thing is true in the church. Our part of the baton is to make disciples, to make disciples and to grow the church, obviously. But a part of it real is to replace ourselves. To say, God, if, if you don't come back before I go to you, I don't want to leave that spot vacant. I hope to fill it with multiples. I need to be a part of the relay. I need to be ready to serve Jesus in a way that He's crafted me to do good. That because of the resurrection, my life has been changed, but He has kept me here for a purpose. He didn't say, well, you checked that box, time to go to heaven. He's got you here for a reason to do good, to serve in a good way that brings Him glory, that reveals His grace, that testifies to His gospel. And lastly, to be renewed by who this Jesus is. By growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Once again, we can get lulled to sleep at the wheel. We can have those moments where we say, oh God, I figure you got this. I'll just check out. No, we need to be woken by the Lord and say, God, renew my heart, renew my mind, refresh my spirit, and help me not to lose sight. Though sometimes... The, all the daggers and darts of this world kind of pierce me and I leak and I forget. God, fill me up so that in my life I demonstrate the gospel. I declare your grace. I display and live as a definition of the glory of God that only He could do this. Because I don't serve a God that's dead. I serve a God that's great and loving and life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today as we come to this moment of response, I pray that we would see the value, the incredible value of what it means to trust in You, to serve You, and to know that this is not just some song and dance routine. This is not just some time filler. This is about the one who lives, the one who changes everything. And God, I pray we know what that change looks like in our life. For those that do not yet know that, God, help them recognize who you are and then reveal to them the next step of trusting in you, the response that is needing. For those that need deliverance from sin, that have felt the sting of its power for far too long, God, Help them see that the resurrection overcomes the power of sin and death. And Jesus, for those that have lost loved ones, for those that feel that burden and that pain, God, help them know the peace that they have when that person is trusted in You, that You keep them and preserve them. And it provides a reminder to us that we are to be about the business so that every person we know that we love and care for, God, they have the ability at least to respond to Your grace. That we are entrusted with sharing with them that message. To give them the ability to make that choice. Because we never want that pain of saying, I knew that person. And I knew there was a resurrection. And I never shared it with them. God, help us delight in you and demonstrate your message. Let us be your living declarations in this time such as this.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed this moment. Each of the worship gatherings, we have this moment of response. And it basically provides you the ability to do just that. To respond to the, the teaching of God's Word. Of what it says, what it means, how it applies. And now that moment of what am I going to do about it. Where it's just you and God. And I can surely label a bunch of possibilities, possible decisions that you could make. Maybe you know that you've not ever trusted Jesus and, and you need to be saved and place your trust and your faith in Him. Maybe you need to unite with this church. Maybe you need to be baptized scripturally. Maybe there's a mission God has called you. I can list all kinds of possibilities. But when it comes down to it, God's impression on your heart through the Holy Spirit of what you need to do, that's what matters. And what are you going to do to that question? What are you going to do about that command? If you need someone to pray with, someone to talk to about that decision, I'm going to be up front. Whether it's needing that peace with God that you're lacking, whether it's some obedient step of faith, I'm going to be here at the front. The music's going to play. You take this time to pray and follow God's leadership in your life on what you need to do. I'm here, should you